morning. I'm Anna Kukulbert. It's Friday, November 19th. What should you do if your home deed includes racial restrictions? More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. The County of San Diego is encouraging booster shots for all eligible adults. Paul Downey is with Serving Seniors. He says they've been working throughout the pandemic to make sure seniors have access to the vaccine. Since most older adults were in the earlier phases of getting the vaccine back February and March, uh, their six months is passed and they should get out and get it. With gas prices going higher each day and driving up inflation, President Joe Biden called on the FTC to investigate whether oil companies are fueling the spike. But San Diego State economics professor Joe Silverman thinks it's just political theater. To to show collusion, you'd have to show that people from different oil companies, you know, have gotten together and and fixed the price. And I don't think that what you're seeing in the market now can only be explained by collusion. He says it's simple economics, supply and demand. More people are driving now, but oil production hasn't bounced back to pre-pandemic levels. The San Diego VA hospital may soon be renamed in honor of a local combat veteran. Army nurse Captain Jennifer Moreno was 25 years old when she was killed in Afghanistan in 2013 while serving with Special Operations Forces. She may become only the third woman to have a VA facility named in her honor. Roughly 14% of the military are women, but they don't always feel welcome at VA facilities. A VA study recommended a long list of changes, including renaming facilities facilities for female veterans. From KPBS, you are listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Today, we bring you the third and final part of our KPBS three-part series on racial covenants. KPBS recent equity reporter Christina Kim examines how people are reconciling the legacy of racial restrictions, also why people are choosing to remove, or in some cases, not remove the racial restrictions from their deeds. Everyone who has come into this house has had that moment where they walk in and they go, oh my God, it feels so good in here. Like It feels like a sanctuary. We're like, oh, thank you. And that's exactly what Kiona Beatty and Ken Zach's 1920 Mission Hill bungalow feels and smells like. A sanctuary perfumed with Palo Santo and filled with plants and decorated in rich earth tones. But in 2019, they uncovered a hard truth about their dream home, a racially restrictive covenant attached to the original deed. 
it, like so many other San Diego properties built in the early 20th century, barred non-white people from owning in their neighborhood. That's a shadow over this, not only this property, but this whole neighborhood has this restriction tied to it. But so to me, it was like, let's remove that. Beatty is black and Zach is white. It felt wrong that the original deed to their shared home banned Beatty from living there. The U.S. Supreme Court outlawed racially restrictive deeds in 1948, and there was an attachment to their deed saying just that. But Beatty and Zach wanted to take things a step further. They wanted any and all mentions of the restrictions struck from the document. And I was a retired lawyer at the time, so I just Googled, um, you know, the, the statute and found it. And the statute's pretty clear on how you do it. The statute Zach is referring to is a law that was enacted in 2005. It gives California homeowners the ability to cross out racially restrictive language from their deeds. Beatty and Ken finished the process on the last day of 2020's Black History Month. They immediately felt the difference. People might say, you know, oh, it's not enforceable, so what's the point in going through all the steps and doing this? Like, what does it really prove? And I like to say it felt like doing, like, the ultimate smudge stick. For them, it's not about forgetting, but creating a new foundation and future for their home. Not everyone in California, however, is eager to remove the racially restrictive covenants from their deeds. I don't want it to be lost 20 years from now that this was a part of society. They say, be aware of history or forever be doomed to repeat it. Michael Dew of El Cerrito is a black homeowner who was once mistaken for a gardener in his own El Cerrito neighborhood. He's keeping the restrictive language on his deed, and he's been able to use it to get his extended family to talk about San Diego's racist history and the hurdles they faced. It's not been easy. You really have to pull teeth to get your older relatives to talk about these things. And I think that's a piece of the trauma of it all is like rather than tackle it head on, we're just going to put it in the back. He understands why his grandfathers and family don't want to talk about it. But he also wants to make sure that the history is kept alive, especially as debates over suburbia, single family zoning and where to build affordable housing are once again taking center stage at the local level and as we saw during the 2020 presidential campaign at the national level. The suburbs, people fight all of their lives to get into the suburbs and have a beautiful home. There will be no more low-income housing forced into the suburbs. Racially restrictive covenants and other forms of housing discrimination are illegal now, but the ideas and language that normalize racial restrictions in the first place continue today. So a lot of NIMBY movements, not in my backyard movements, Uh, where people are pushing back against changes that would make a neighborhood more accessible. That's Nancy Quack, a UC San Diego historian. Often when local San Diegans talk about property values and their rights as homeowners, she hears the same logic that was used in the past to defend segregation. This is where I put my money and I saved my earnings, so therefore this is something that I deserve. Quack says that while we no longer hear overt racist statements around housing, homeowners still feel it's their right to control who can and can't live near them. That's why she and others emphasize the importance of seeing and understanding the connection between the racial covenants of last century and the housing issues of today. And that was KPBS Race and Equity reporter Christina Kim. Last month, Governor Newsom signed into law new legislation that makes it even easier for Californians to find and redact racial restrictions. If you missed any part of the KPBS three-part series, you can catch up on kpbs.org.
The vaccine deadline for the city of San Diego's employees is less than two weeks away. But how many have yet to comply with the city's mandate? KPBS's Kitty Alvarado looked into the numbers. 11,308. That's the number of people who work for the city of San Diego. All of them must be fully vaccinated by December 1st to comply with the city's mandate or be dismissed. Nearly 20% of the city staff is confirmed as unvaccinated. The city can actually condition continued employment on getting vaccination. That's the bottom line. Dan Eaton is a legal analyst who practices employment law. There is a risk that not only with respect to public safety, but also with respect to a variety of other city functions, that some employees are going to choose resistance to vaccination over continuing to work for the city. Four departments in the city have the highest number of unvaccinated people. The police department with almost 37 percent, manual and skilled workers at almost 29 percent, and the fire department and city's lifeguards are essentially tied at just over 16 percent. All of this comes on the heels of OSHA suspending the emergency temporary standard that states private companies with 100 or more employees must require vaccination or weekly testing. The Court of Appeals says that rule needs judicial review. Eaton says it has no bearing on the city's mandate. The stuff that's going on, it's important to understand, the stuff that is going on at the federal level with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration doesn't really have very much to do with what is going on at the state and local level. But it does create confusion. When you look at how fluidly this coronavirus has progressed since its inception, it's been moving faster than the speed of law. And because of that, if you're not confused right now about what you can and cannot do, whether you're an employer or an employee, you're just not paying attention. Ultimately, he says, whether or not the federal mandate holds, private employers have the right to create their own mandates as a condition of employment. And that was reporting from KPBS's Kitty Alvarado. The city of Sacramento is weighing whether homeless residents should have a legal right to housing. CAP Radio's Chris Nichols has more. As an advisor to the governor, Steinberg for years has called on California cities to create a legal right to shelter for homeless people. Now he's proposing his own city take it one step further by mandating a right to housing. Providing housing for people in society as a matter of law is optional and voluntary. There's nothing that says we have to do anything about these sets of issues. And of course we do. His plan, which would take effect in 2023, would require unhoused people to accept shelter when given at least two options. If they decline, they'd be moved, even if they're on public property. But there'd be no fines or arrests. Homeless advocate Bob Erlenbush praised the plan, but says Sacramento needs to create new shelters faster. At the rate they're creating those programs, which is incredibly slow, there's no way that they'll be ready to enforce anything in 2023. The city previously passed a plan to build more shelters, tiny homes, and campgrounds, but only a few sites have opened so far. And that was CAP Radio's Chris Nichols reporting from Sacramento. Holiday food distributions continue throughout San Diego as Thanksgiving approaches. KPBS's Melissa May attended two recent events aimed at helping our military community. 
We thank you for your service. The San Diego Military Advisory Council says this region is home to over 100,000 active duty service members and more than 240,000 veterans. The military is out there protecting us and making sure that we have our freedom, so just a small way that we can give back to the community. They serve and sacrifice so much for our nation and, um, you know, this is just a really great way to give back. So they can concentrate on their mission and not have to worry about their families back home. To help active military members, veterans, and their families during the holiday season, organizations are stepping up to help. We host about 300 families each distribution, and especially during the holiday season, uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas time, families are really in need of that extra help and support, so we're here to help. Anna Brees is the Director of Community Relations at the Armed Services YMCA. We are in the middle of the largest military housing actually in the nation and the largest concentration of military kids are all within this Murphy Canyon area. So it's really important for us to be here and it's convenient for the families. With the help of about 20 volunteers, families received fresh produce and canned goods along with a turkey. Happy Thanksgiving. Right up the road, Support the Enlisted Project, or STEP, received a unique donation from the United Way of San Diego County. There's a lot of food distribution, but then what do you do with it, right? It's really great to be able to have a crock pot that they can then use to cook the food that they get, and it's so easy. Nancy Sasaki is the president and CEO of United Way of San Diego County, and they delivered 130 crock pots to STEP. They can have dinner on the table, they can help their kids with their homework, and that's just a little bit of a relief for, from the stress of all the day and just this environment that we're in these days. I know when I was on active duty, I used my crock pot quite a bit. It's um, less time consuming after a long day at work, um, but something our families can use not just once, not just for one holiday, but for many holidays to come. Tracy Owens is the program manager for STEP and served in the military for 30 years. She explains why military families sometimes need extra support. The cost of living here is high, and so um, the BAH that they receive doesn't go as far as it does in some other part of the country. Um, and it just helps them to offset those, those high expenses. The crock pots will be distributed on November 20th during their Step Into the Holidays meal distribution campaign that will help about 200 active duty service members, veterans, and their families. And that was KPBS's Melissa May. Coming up, with all that's gone on with COVID-19 vaccines, surges in infections, hospitalizations, and the new push for boosters, is herd immunity still possible? Well, the CDC's shift in messaging away from herd immunity hasn't really instilled much confidence. We'll have more on that next, just after the break. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. 
When the pandemic began, some leading health officials maintained that herd immunity would eventually provide a clear path back to normalcy. When enough people are immune through vaccination or natural immunity, a population achieves herd immunity. The disease stops spreading efficiently and starts to fade away. But with a portion of the population refusing to get vaccinated and with waning immunity among those who've survived coronavirus infections, as well as those who've been vaccinated, reaching herd immunity seems unlikely. Just recently, the CDC has moved away from messaging that touts herd immunity as a national goal for the American public, signaling a distinct shift in the fight against COVID-19. Rebecca Fielding Miller is an epidemiologist and professor at UC San Diego. She spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. Here's that interview. Can you give us a quick recap on the concept of herd immunity and why it was such a strong goal in the fight against COVID-19? So I think we've all learned a lot of new words in the last couple of years in terms of our public health jargon toolkit. So herd immunity is a really specific idea. And what it means is enough people are vaccinated or not vulnerable to infection that when a virus is going around, we can sort of form a protective wall around people who aren't able to be vaccinated or who are extra susceptible. So imagine 98 people in a room and they're all vaccinated and they're all surrounding a two-year-old who can't get vaccinated. The virus can't break through to the vulnerable person. So we as a, as a herd, as a community are protecting people. And I think that's kind of gotten confused with the idea of eradication or elimination or, or control. When health officials began to discuss herd immunity as a way of fighting COVID, did it always seem like a realistic prospect in the United States? I think that it's a hard number to calculate what percentage of people need to get vaccinated. And it depends on a lot of things. It depends on how easy it is to transmit the virus. It depends on how susceptible people are to getting the virus. And I think that in, a, in the early days, we really confused the idea of herd immunity, um, which is to say enough of us are vaccinated who can get vaccinated to protect those who can't, we really confused that with the idea of, of elimination or eradication. So COVID was never going to be eliminated through vaccination. That was never the goal. But the goal was enough people can get vaccinated to protect people who are vulnerable. And I think with the Delta variant really taking off the, the increase in how easy it is to transmit has really made that number even harder to achieve. We're seeing the CDC move away from herd immunity as a tangible goal. Why is that? I think that has a lot to do with the Delta variant and the fact that, again, herd immunity is predicated on the idea that enough people are safe that we can protect people who are vulnerable. So babies, kids under five who can't get vaccinated. In an ideal world, we could vaccinate enough people that little kids could go to t-ball or gymnastics and not worry about it because so many people are vaccinated that the virus isn't circulating enough to get to them. The problem is um, the Delta variant is so infectious that it's really, that it's very easy for it to kind of slip through that wall of protective adults um, and kids over the age of uh, five. And we're seeing that there's just not mm, a willingness um, nationwide so far among people who are eligible to get vaccinated to protect those who can't. Transmission is a key aspect of this. Why haven't any available vaccines been able to reliably block transmission of COVID-19? What the vaccines are really, really good at doing is preventing kind of a, a systemic, like a whole body infection. So when we see these kind of breakthrough infections, 
what that typically is, is somebody has an infection that's like living in their nose or their respiratory tract. So the virus can still replicate a little bit before the vaccine can knock it out. And in that short window of time, you can still potentially breathe out enough virus to get somebody else sick. But you're sick for um, a shorter amount of time, which is really important because it means you have less time to breathe out that virus. And you yourself are going to be healthier and hopefully you'd be breathing on somebody who also would be sick for a shorter amount of time if they did get sick and would be breathing out that virus less well. So they do, even when there are breakthrough infections, they do severely limit how bad the spread is from a vaccinated person. You mentioned earlier how the Delta variant plays into this, but why is COVID-19 a particularly hard virus to achieve herd immunity for? Is it mainly due to the Delta variant or are other factors at play here? There are a lot of non-vaccine related reasons why it's been really hard to reach that number. For example, it's become really clear that COVID is, is an occupational disease. Um, If you look at data out of, for example, UC San Francisco that found that line cooks um, had some of the highest rates of illness and death out of any occupation. We know that professions where you can't work from home, where you're constantly in contact with the public, those folks are at really, really high risk. And because we didn't have employment protections in place for enough people, the virus was really allowed to continue transmitting until um, a variant came along that was so transmissible that it made herd immunity even harder to get to. And that could continue to happen. Delta doesn't necessarily need to be the end-all be-all of variants. Another one could come along that is even better at evading our vaccine. So the number of people vaccinated matters, but so does protecting people who are at the highest risk um, socially of getting the virus. Given this new messaging from the CDC, what new ways can we mark progress against the virus? I think one thing that we can certainly keep an eye on is the, um, the case rate. Um, so here in San Diego, our case rate has been plateauing a little bit, and we can see there's a really big difference between um, the rates of illness for people who are vaccinated and not vaccinated. And I think it's really important, and the county has done a really good job of using um, some some health equity markers. So people who are the most vulnerable to getting sick, people who you know, live in crowded housing conditions, people who have these frontline jobs. If we see that numbers are consistently pretty low for those communities, that's a sign that we're all doing a really good job because it's it's an airborne infectious disease and everybody's not safe. Like you're not safe until everybody is safe. So now since we're moving away from herd immunity, what are the long-term strategies now of limiting the spread of COVID or, or even just treating COVID? Yeah, so the the strategies really remain the same um, that we've been talking about this whole time. Um, A mask that fits you well um, and that you're willing to wear, um, that your kid is willing to wear, um, is always going to be a really helpful uh, risk mitigation strategy. I wear KN95s. My daughter wears tiny child KN95s. spending as much time outdoors and fresh air as you can, and making sure that we have bigger social structures in place to make that easy for people, making sure that everybody who wants to get vaccinated has the opportunity. And, um, you know, the South County um, has done a really phenomenal job in ensuring um, equitable vaccine access, Um, making sure that people have access to paid sick leave so that if they need to stay home, they can and they don't spread it. These are all what we call sort of like non-pharmaceutical or policy level interventions. And they're also incredibly important just as much as these new pills that are coming out that's really exciting or vaccines or boosters. 
That was Rebecca Fielding Miller, an epidemiologist and professor at UC San Diego. She was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Thank you.